0: Welcome to the Menstruality Podcast, where we share inspiring conversations about the power of menstrual cycle awareness and conscious menopause. This podcast is brought to you by Red School, where we're training the menstruality leaders of the future. I'm your host, Sophie Jane Hardy, and I'll be joined often by Red School's founders, Alexandra and Shani, as well as an inspiring group of pioneers, activists, changemakers and creatives to explore how you can unashamedly claim the power of the menstrual cycle to activate your unique form of leadership for yourself, your community and the world. Hi there, thank you so much for being with me today for tuning in and welcome to the Menstruality Podcast. I want to open us up in a different way today with a quote from my guest. So she said, you cannot say how many cubic meters make up courage, or what kind of wires you need to construct freedom. What kind of lab do you go into to measure relationships between people? And when Mina Salami, my guest today, said this, I got shivers up and down my spine, as I did several times reading her brilliant book, Sensuous Knowledge. As a deeply intuitive woman raised in a hyper-rational world and culture, or as Mina calls it, a world rooted in Euro-patriarchal knowledge, Mina Salami is a Nigerian, Finnish, and Swedish feminist author and social critic. Her research focuses on Black feminist theory, contemporary African thought, and the politics of knowledge production. And today we're exploring sensuous knowledge, a model of knowledge rooted in the dynamic landscape of Black feminist thought, one that empowers and enlivens and liberates through embodied insight so in the conversation we look at how the menstrual cycle can be a source of profound disruptive ways of knowing what happens in a world which only values that which can be quantified and measured and put into hierarchies rather than honoring the knowledge that emerges from within us and from within our bodies and what Mina calls the kaleidoscopic method, what rivers, trees, and placentas can teach us about power and the nature of reality. So welcome to the menstruality podcast, Mina. It's such a delight to have you, especially because I've really been immersing myself in your work and there was a hunger in me for the story that you're telling. And I can imagine it's similar for many people in our audience, this new story of sensuous knowledge. And as I said in my email to you, I literally have hundreds of questions for you, but I'm going to trust that we'll find our way to a really rich conversation today. I know we will. And yeah, I'd just love to start by asking you how you are in your cycle experience today. Where are you at in your cycle and how is it influencing you?
1: Thank you, Sophie. Uh, It's such a pleasure to be here and to be sharing this space with you. Um, I have just finished my cycle, my period today. Um, So I'm in the beginning of my probably my favorite phase in my cycle where, uh, yeah, where you start to feel a bit more active again. Mm -hmm. Lovely.
0: I... I feel like it would be great to start the conversation by hearing a bit about your story and how your identities and how you were raised and where you were raised have helped to create a foundation for the work that you're bringing into the world. Yeah, could you walk us into your the beginning of your life?
1: <laughs> okay, um, I'll, I'll take you even a little bit further back than that um, to... Uh, actually where I'm living at the moment, which is in Hamburg in Germany, uh, which also coincidentally is a city where uh, these two people who are my mother and my father met um, in the 1960s. Uh, They were both students at the University of Hamburg. And my mother had come to Hamburg from, from Finland and my father had come to Hamburg from Nigeria. And they met here and they fell in love and they lived here for many years. Uh, And so therefore it is, it has been uh, quite special for me to be here now. Um, But in any case, they, uh, that's where the story starts. And uh, they then moved to Nigeria um, where they had me um, or my, I was born in Finland, uh, you know, because of, the world order, uh, that you get better medical care in, in the West. And so my mom decided to go to Finland to give birth to me, but um, we went back to Nigeria when I was a few months old. And so I grew up in Lagos in in Nigeria, which um, was, I had a, a a really colorful and dynamic and exciting childhood. Quite crazy, I have to say. I had quite a crazy childhood. A lot of I had a, a lot of near-death experiences, for instance, very many. Um, I, you know, there was always something happening in my childhood. So <laughs> I was I was instantly born into an eventful kind of atmosphere. Um, but I I lived in Lagos until I was 13 and and I lived in a, a, a big sort of a family compound of sorts. So there were many flats in this big house. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all occupied by different family members. Um, And so even though I was growing up as an only child, I had, uh, you know, the children of my aunties and uncles uh, growing up in the same house with me. Uh, So I always felt like I was part of this this huge family. Um, And it was here in Nigeria in these formative years that I uh, came to understand that I was a feminist um, and I say this retrospectively. I didn't use that word as a child, um, but I I was a, a, I was kind of an old soul. I was very much of an observer as a child. Um, and I was like my very earliest memory when I was about four is of me being upset and angry because I had realized that there was something that boys were allowed to do and girls were not allowed to do. I can't remember what it was, but I remember the feeling of rage about it. Um, uh, and so, and yeah, and throughout my childhood, I, I noticed those things, uh, the, the the gendered inequalities and patterns of, of uh, oppression. Uh, I noticed it everywhere in, Nigerian society and the family, in uh, in my school, in society at large, in politics, um, and so I really was developing already this this uh, this person who I am today, you know, this persona even. Um, at thirteen, uh, the situ- at the time in in the early nineties, Nigeria there was a terrible dictatorship, and so my mother and I. Uh, my mother decided that because of me, she would relocate. Uh, And we moved to Sweden rather than Finland, where she's from, because uh, we had family there. And so I moved to Sweden. And I ended up living in Sweden for over a decade. Um, And it was very, very difficult because I was this patriotic Nigerian child, despite the the patriarchal nature of nigeria there were also so many things obviously that i loved about living there um and so moving to sweden was difficult because i didn't want to for one and secondly because uh my first years in sweden were years in which i was bullied and i experienced a lot of racism um and uh maybe to 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 tie in to uh the podcast um but this is actually the the you know the genuine truth um that about a week after I had moved to Sweden I started my period um so I got my period for the very first time literally I think it was seven days after we had moved there wow and that was huge um that really because as I said I'd been this child who, was a feminist and who who was observing um, what it meant basically to be a man or a woman in society. And the moment I got my period, I went into a kind of depression. I was already sad about having moved from Nigeria, but that added to it because it made me realize that I had now become a woman and I didn't want to become a woman only because I had seen that it was a difficult predicament. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, it was a, uh, you know, I don't feel that way anymore. Um, But at the time, it was a a really difficult thing and not really being able to talk about it with people because, you know, we live in this kind of world where there's so much shame and stigma and taboos around periods. Um, So I was going through this phase of like being in a new country Being experiencing negative things, and then also uh, just having to behave like I would change my pad, you know, once an hour or something because I didn't know (laughs) what do you do? Like, is it am I going to bleed all over the place? Uh, Yeah, just absurd things that you know, no, no young woman should have to go through. Um, Yes. So yeah, so so and then to 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 just close off in terms of my my so listeners know that I no longer live in Sweden. I I then moved uh, in my twenties. I moved first to New York, uh, spent some time in Spain, but eventually ended up in in London, where I've been living for almost two decades. Um, but I'm now in Hamburg, as I said. Um, yeah. Mm. And
0: can you speak to how so growing up in Nigeria? And then moving to Sweden and how, what sparked or what drove this African-centric feminism that you write about and write from? And for our listeners, Sensuous Knowledge, the book is an absolute must read. And Mina goes into a lot of detail on this in the first couple of chapters. But yeah, could you just give us a couple of yeah thoughts to, to walk us into that piece as well?
1: Yeah, uh, so I, uh, you know, having arrived in Sweden, I spent, as I said, there were many years of experiencing discrimination. Um, I learned in Sweden that I was, uh, I learned, I guess, what it means to be a Black person. Uh, It wasn't something that I had really given much thought in terms of my own identity when I lived in Nigeria. So I definitely had a really strong awareness of blackness in a global context. Uh, Like, you know, my family was uh, on the left and spoke a lot about the radical politics of their youth and um, uh, and in also what was happening in Nigeria at the time. So I, I knew that there were a lot of injustices that were racially based, but I'd never thought about what that meant for me as a human in the world and then in sweden um i you know this label was applied to me that i was black um or mixed race depending um uh, and so i started to to contend with that and what that meant um and and i guess i discovered actually a sort of uh, a treasure trove because it connected me to things that i had felt as a child but i hadn't had the language for in a sense um, and I started to, uh, you know, to to read more books about black identity. I uh, engaged a lot with. I was really into hip hop in my teens, uh, and particularly conscious hip hop, um, and and sort of neo soul music, where uh, and reggae, and all of these uh, musical genres that actually were very much uh, d- dealing with with the issues that come with blackness uh and and so in retrospect you know it's a kind of a gift even if it was difficult because it came to me from feeling a sense of alienation uh it it actually gave me uh you know this treasure trove of of ancestral knowledge uh and cultural insight and uh writing you know both fiction and nonfiction uh and so when i um then realized uh, that I was a feminist when the first time that I kind of came to this word that had shaped my character my entire life, but I didn't yet uh, articulate. um, It was uh, first, actually, it was a a white man who made me, uh, who gave me this word in a sense, because he was a a lecturer um, at my university. And uh, we were talking about the female gaze, and then he he mentioned the work that feminists had done uh, in terms of the female gaze. And for the rest of that lecture, I didn't hear a word he said. All I could think about was this this f word. <laughs> <laughs> How at home I felt, um, and yeah, and so I, I I started on this journey then of being a feminist and what it meant. And I very soon then realized that what I could find in the school library and just in society around me still wasn't fully addressing something that for me was important. Um, uh, and it was not just that it wasn't addressing race. It was uh, a, it's a particular kind of worldview or maybe I should say several worldviews that come from having an identity that intersects with different um. With experiences that have been formed by oppression of different natures, um, and so I sort of intuitively gravitated uh, toward a knowing that I needed to read black feminist work, uh, and then I really felt at home for perhaps the first time in my life when I when I started to engage with with those writers, and that's where you know my my path as a as a black feminist, began. Mm. Listening to you speak, um,
0: well, one of the ways you describe sensuous knowledge is kaleidoscopic. And listening to you speak, it does the same thing as when I read your words. Stories start to unfold and lots of different avenues and ways of thinking start to open up. And as I'm listening to you, there's sort of like 20 questions just appear in front of me. But the one that I moved to ask first or to speak about first is this first period moment because one of the things we explore at Red School and in this menstruality way of seeing the world and seeing life is that the first period is such a pivotal moment in terms of our soul um, awakening or our first sense of our unique nature um, showing itself or meeting the world and in that place where our deep self meets the world then we start to find our our calling or our um, purpose or you know he give it lots of different words and I just find it really striking that that happened for you right when you made this huge move from where you'd always lived to across the other side of the world in a completely different culture
1: and yeah I'm very moved by that. I, I also find it quite uh, not quite coincidental I should say I think I, I mean, of course, you know, your period is going to start sooner or later if you are a female. But I um, I, I, I see there being a correlation of, there was like a, a lot of big shifts for me at the time. Um, and I think that that has very much uh, sort of, it, it set forth a relationship that I would have to my period uh, moving forward, um, and and how I've uh, you know it's it's always been a bit of a difficult thing for me uh, with periods, and I uh, yeah just finding that it's 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 maybe one of the facets of life in which I really feel how much beauty there is in the female cycle and being a woman um, how much beauty and power and sensuality um, on the one hand but it's also something that is that represents for me pain difficult transformations um, shame all of those kinds of things Um, and also uh, interestingly that that you know that first period of mine uh, was happening in a time when I was for the first time experiencing racism. Um, well, not for the first time, I hadn't experienced it as a child, but like in a in an environment that I lived in. Um, because that has also been something that continues to really shape uh how my my personal like individual period um is exists in the world, uh, you know, the 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 journey that I've been on with it. And I can talk a bit more about the sort of uh, actual like issues that I've had and how that's been dealt with, uh, you know, by, by doctors and so on in society. Yeah. Let's go
0: there. And then I'd love to bring us back to sensuous knowledge, but yeah, let's, I'd love to hear about this. You you said that you've experienced fibroids and this was navigating. This is one of the things that taught you about the kind of medical medicalized racism
1: that there is in the world yes um sadly and i i think this is maybe an experience that others also have had i mean certainly many black women have but probably you know women generally uh, to some extent as well um but yeah i uh, a few years ago i started to have extremely heavy periods to the point that i could not leave my house when I was menstruating Uh, and I have for much of my life I've I have been uh, somebody who experiences uh, a lot of difficulty uh, with pain so I have a lot of cramps and pains and so um, my periods are typically a time for me when I have to slow down which is something that I I've come to appreciate actually Um, but I say this just to to preface that I've I've always had uh, difficult periods, and but anyway, some years ago they became extreme, uh, and uh, you know, and I was clotting a lot, and it was just really terrible. Um, and around the same time, I um, I, I, I walk a lot. Um, I see that as part of the writing process for me is to to walk and be in nature. Um, and so I can walk for hours and hours and hours and I was doing that especially around that time Um, and I was finding it increasingly difficult to uh, to go for to to walk for a long time I would just like lose my breath um, after half an hour and literally need to sit down because I felt like I couldn't breathe Uh, and so eventually I I went to see a doctor and um, I mean you may Guess where this is going? Um, I was told um, all kinds of things. You know, the first one was that it was a mental health issue uh, that maybe I was suffering from anxiety. Uh, and at the time, I I had no reason uh, to be suffering from anxiety. Things felt quite easy for me, so I questioned it. But I thought, okay, maybe I'll look into this and so on. Anyway, it it took months of seeing different doctors um, in London, uh, all were saying the same thing or just dismissing it. Uh, and eventually one doctor said, let's do a blood test. And it turns out that I had um, hardly any red blood cells and you know, I had terrible anemia um, because of these heavy periods. And only then when they discovered that I had anemia, did they think that, okay, now we should look into... Uh, into what's causing it, and therein began this process that eventually culminated in me finding out that I had some really big fibroids. Um, and this really is the, the the that was all just a preface to getting, uh, although even that was like gendered and racialized healthcare to a max.
0: And still, so many people listening will relate to that months and months and months and months to get any kind of diagnosis.
1: Yeah, yeah, don't accept that. Please, people, when you hear this, um, if you're going through anything that your body's telling you something's wrong and professional uh, medical professionals are saying that it's nothing, don't listen to them um, yeah. until you feel that you've got a satisfactory answer. Um, because, yeah, then I uh, we found the fibroids and then began this process of, you know, uh, I was advised to have a hysterectomy, um which I didn't really want to have. Um I didn't feel ready to, you know, difficult as my periods have been, I I guess I wasn't yet ready to to let go of them and to have such a big surgery, surgical procedure. Um, but but what was really awful during all this time was that the tests that I were having, that I was having done, um, most especially uh, a hysteros- hysteroscopy. Um, I always confuse the, the two: hysterectomy and hysteroscopy. So, hysteroscopy is, uh, you know, when they put insert a, a sort of metal rod-like instrument in order to look inside you into your womb, um, and it's an extremely painful procedure which i have later learned that you were supposed to have under anesthetics or at least with some very strong painkillers um i was not given either of those um and it was one of the most painful things that i've ever been through and as i mentioned earlier i've had a lot of near death experiences but that was um that was that was awful um so yeah uh i i really it really opened my eyes to like how we are expected to just deal with pain as Black women, as women, as Black people. Um, You know, it's just crazy uh, that, you know, if I were a man, if men were dealing with fibroids, there would definitely be all the accurate uh, pain prevention would be in place. Um, And I just left the hospital feeling like I'd been violated because I thought surely I wasn't supposed to feel so much pain for an examination. Um, uh, and, and yeah, and then I started to to sort of look into it and speak to other women who had had this procedure, I speak to my friends in Sweden uh, who work in healthcare, and they were shocked. Uh, they said, you know, that could not happen in Sweden. Uh, uh, and, and then I found out that it's actually also not supposed to happen in the UK. So uh, you know it 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 really was one of those. I live in an area where you know you have a, a a big constituency of of black people. um and it makes you wonder how these how these things come to bear. The other thing that happened, and what I did change, um I changed my diet. Um, I I have been meditating for a long time, but I started to take that even more seriously i just basically kind of uh de-stressed my life as much as i could and i and i feel like that made some difference um, i still have painful periods um so mm-hmm. yeah it was just quite an quite an ordeal <laughs>
0: yeah thank you so much for sharing that and i'm so sorry for what you experienced and also so glad to hear that you found yourself in the place that you are now and I totally agree it's deeply important for us to share these stories and I think back to your sensuous knowledge that there's like a body of knowledge that we still need to build together around menstrual cycles and it's through normally in our work what we see is through story after story after story we're weaving this tapestry of menstruality together and there's something so magical about it because I think with every story that gets told the fog of shame that patriarchy has shrouded the menstrual cycle with just just moves aside a little You know, there's a little more clarity and a little more um, opportunity to to feel the power of the, the cyclic you know the cyclicity within us as well thank you so
1: much for sharing that Thank you. I, I I love what you're doing. I think it's it's so beautiful to like be sort of collecting these stories, and it it goes back. I mean, as you said, the, the tapestry of menstrual stories uh, goes back to uh, as as you mentioned before, what I refer to as the the kaleidoscopic nature of sensuous knowledge. You know, there's a there's a, a correlation there, um, and I think yeah, particularly with Menstruality—it's we need that kaleidoscope, you know, where we can we see that, you know, in a kaleidoscope everything is is happening in that one object, uh, and yet it's like this whole universe, this pluriverse uh, that opens up if you look into it. Uh, you know, our our menstrual stories are are one story, um, in a sense, one story of power, of oppression, of repression of sexuality of of life and birth really um, and it is particularly because it is that one story that patriarchy has for so long tried to uh, you know to silence it um so it's very 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 important to to continue to talk about it to to post pictures about it to you know to really undo all of the harm that has been created in our psyches due to this awful, awful uh, nomination of of women's menstruation.
0: I want to pause this conversation with Minna to share this reading from her book, Sensuous Knowledge because it connects so many topics that come up in our communities at Red School and also around my kitchen table with my friends. How to move, live and work more from our intuitive body wisdom and how to infuse soul and cyclicity into our all-too-linear, rational worlds. How to honour the wisdom and knowledge that's born from our wombs, you know, as many would say, to live from and with the feminine. All the way to how we can build a new world which values this different kind of knowledge within every aspect of life, from our relationships to our education systems to even our economies. As Minna calls it, sensuous knowledge. So here's an excerpt from the book. Europatriarchal knowledge also devalues the erotic, the feminine and the poetic, because they are connected to the natural world. What the Euro-patriarchal narrative essentially vilifies is interiority. Poetry is the language of the interior or the soul. Nature inhabits the interior of earth and women's sexual organs which carry poesis, I think that's how you pronounce that, life, pleasure and creation Or interior. Not only is the vagina a wet, warm, and dark place like the enclave of a forest, it leads to an even more hidden yet life bearing location, the womb. Surrounding all of this sexual interiority, like an ozone layer, is the clitoris, a poetic organ if ever there were one. Humans are the only species that are distinctly poetic and erotic, and to degrade these qualities in knowledge production is to deprive knowledge of its humaneness and render it robotic. Poetry explains a feeling such as longing in the way the scientific method can't. Dance describes freedom in a way that mathematics cannot. Inner stillness explains existence in a way that technology cannot. The acceptance of the raw, pure quality of interiority is essential to meaningful change. If we applied sensuous knowledge to the economy, it would produce an erotic economy of sorts in which reciprocity and sustenance, rather than surplus and scarcity, would thrive. If we applied it to education, children would take classes in subjects like empathy and dialogue, as well as maths and science. Okay, a quick note before we get back into the conversation with Minna. I want to invite you to save the date for a live online gathering that we're hosting at Red School around the cyclical nature of creativity we'll tell you more soon but for now please save the date it's july the 15th that's a wednesday and it's happening at 11 a.m new york time 4 p.m uk time that's wednesday the 15th of july at 11 a.m new york 4 p.m uk okay back to the conversation with minna I think it was one of the things that made me feel um, freedom and joy in me when I read this term, Euro-patriarchal knowledge. Not because I'm excited about Euro-patriarchal knowledge, but because to hear it named in that way and to hear you spell out, ah, kind of give voice to this structure that I felt like a vice around my soul throughout my life but no one was talking about it. And I've always felt there's a different way to be, there's a different way that we could be speaking. And could, could you could you walk us into, this is a big term, but could you sort of walk us into Euro-patriarchal knowledge? And particularly also, like, there's a part of the book where you say, you know, Bell Hooks speaks about this as white suprematist capitalist patriarchy, which I like, guess is a incredibly powerful important term too but why you decided to differentiate in sensuous knowledge
1: so your patriarchal knowledge uh, is in a nutshell uh, uh, an approach to knowledge so to understanding reality which prioritizes obsesses and endorses a, a rationalist Technical and materialist worldview, uh, and so uh, what that means is that you know we are we are living in an understanding of reality where we think that reality, all of reality, is something that can be quantified, measured, um, and of course, consequently, then put into hierarchies because we can only put we can only create hierarchies uh once we can have something material and tangible that we say oh yeah this makes a better than b um because we've measured it in a lab um you know and and so um your patriarchal knowledge uh, firstly is about this you know it's it's um uh uh, uh, uh uh it's a kind of an ontology which means you know a way of a way of seeing reality and it's a it's it's completely false because you know there are so many things that we cannot measure. Uh you cannot uh you cannot say how many cubic meters uh is courage uh what kind of wires do you need to construct freedom uh what what kind of lab do you go into to uh, you know, measure relationships between people. There, th- these are, And these are very real things, you know, we're talking about the nature of reality. We, we experience emotions, we experience relationships, they exist, we experience thoughts. Um, but because there's no way of measuring these things, within your patriarchal knowledge, what we do is that we either, uh, you know, we just ignore them, or even worse, we try to force them into a box. We try to, you know, we force some kind of nonsensical measurement upon these things. Um, and so my criticism um, and in, in using this this term, your patriarchal knowledge, is firstly coming from me as a social critic, broadly speaking, who cares about the truth and who cares about, you know, actual um sense-making in a a way. Um, And the second reason, and it's, you know, very, very important. uh, The second reason is that because I, I, I criticize and I coined this term because this way of knowing lies at the root of oppression. Um, You know, it's about power. Um, And wherever there is an abuse of power, there is going to be a crisis, there is going to be suffering. Uh, And, you know, if we were now, if we go back to the image of the kaleidoscope, if reality were a kaleidoscope and we were looking into it, every five seconds, we would see something, rather than the beautiful images we typically see in a kaleidoscope, we would see something dark, painful, dystopian. And that would be a kind of synapse of the abuse of power and how that creates this darkness, this obstruction in reality. Um, and so, you know, we, the, the connection between, um, to Bell, I'll return to what Bell Hooks, uh, you know, because what Bell Hooks is talking about when she says militarist, capitalist, white supremacist, sexist society is, uh, the structures of this society. Um, she also talks about the psychology of these societies, the the culture, all of these things in her body of work. Um, uh, you know, and uh, she's one of the people who has touched upon all of the facets of oppression more than any other thinker and philosopher. But in this particular phrase, she's she's looking. Uh, She's aiming her criticism directly at the structures. And what I was doing in Sensuous Knowledge is aiming my criticism at the narrative, at the, 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 the root origin of the structures of oppression. Um, and it's important to do that so that we can uh, fully understand, uh, you know, what kind of attitude creates sexism and racism and patriarchy and imperialism. And it is the one in which we think technically, in which we think everything is technical, everything is measurable. Uh, it starts from you know think, thinking that the human species is better than non-human species. And we measure that how? Oh, because we are rational beings um, and other species are not, rivers are not rational. Uh, elephants are not rational, allegedly, you know. Um, so that's why it's so important to, to name it as Euro-patriarchal and to, to combine the epistemology and the ways of knowing with our systems and structures of of power.
0: Mm. And then you bring forth sensuous knowledge as an antidote or an alternative, or in fact, you're very careful to say it's you don't want it to be something in contrast to europatriarchal knowledge this
1: is its own yeah could you speak to that thank you uh yeah in my book i i am careful to say that uh i'm not offering sensuous knowledge as a contrast to europatriarchal knowledge um it's it i mean it is a contrast in many ways and i will speak about that shortly but the reason that i say that is um because the point of my book and of my work and sensuous knowledge at large is not to merely to criticize your patriarchal knowledge, because what that does is center your patriarchal knowledge. You know, the moment you are um, the moment you are creating something in opposition to another thing, you are actually centering that other thing. Um, and what I'm driven by is more so, uh to unearth this this other way of knowing um in that process there is a criticism that happens of course uh you know because because the unearth the, the thing that is being unearthed is uh is a response in a sense you know it's a it's a counter to to what exists to the to the delusion and the deception that exists um but yes, at the same time, it purely, uh, you know, in terms of what it is, pure, purely ontologically, it is a contrast. Sensuous knowledge is a contrast to Euro-patriarchal knowledge because where Euro-patriarchal knowledge is, uh, as I've explained, uh, you know, obsessed with what can be measured um, and and what can be categorized and ranked, um, it sensuous knowledge is about uh the the integration of of those things, of the of material reality. Uh, you know, like our periods are material. We can we can see them, we can touch them, we can smell them, <laughs> they they exist materially and biologically and biophysically. Um but uh, and I'll stick with the period example; it's a really good one uh, to explain sensuous knowledge with. They're also um, a phenomenon that can be felt and lived and experienced and sensed. Uh, you know, we started this podcast with a question of where in my cycle I was. Um, I not everybody is as in tune um, and some people are more in tune than others, but you know, I definitely can tell you that I there's a pattern to how I am every month, depending on where I am in my cycle. Um, and they are a phenomenon that give us a tremendous understanding of the world we live in. They, our periods, our menstrual cycles are a source of knowledge. Uh, they are a deep source of knowledge. Um, you know, they teach us so many things, for one, about the cyclical nature of, of life and death, which is something that patriarchal knowledge will do everything to try to, to, to control because it, it's so disturbing to the idea that everything can be neat and packaged, you know, and we can play God um, with our, you know, technological advancements. Um, but our our menstrual cycles really disrupt that. And so this is also a good example of how it's not just the disruption that is important. It's not just, as I was saying, it's not just the criticism that is important. It is the fact that it gives us insight into the nature of the deception because we know what is happening in our bodies in all of these multifaceted, sensuous ways. We know it. And yet... We can clearly see that the conventional dominant knowledge production about our menstrual cycles is it's deluded. So there, that in that space of dissonance, there's a tremendous like body of knowledge to to glean, um, and so it's it it empowers us immensely to to become aware of that, you know. Mm that word on
0: earth that you you used feels really relevant here because I've, I've really been intimately with my cycle for 12 or 13 years and it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper into um, this walking home to myself from all of these structures and um, masks that I've worn because of this patriarchal world that I've grown up in. It's this just turning back towards myself again and again and again and there's a feeling that I am slowly unearthing the truth of myself and the truth of the world. And it's more a clearing away of the crap that's been in the way to get to the truth. And that's what I felt when I was reading Sensuous Knowledge. And I wanted to ask you a question about, um, because this really feels like sensuous knowledge in action. You did an interview with um, um, Amisha, Gadiali who we've interviewed for uh, Red School too and you were talking about how you had this question with you for a long time which was what can rivers teach us about power and just something in me sang when I heard that because I I have a river close to my house I walk it every day and it's incredibly important part of knowing who I am but I can't quite tell you why it's like there's there's all of this knowledge that is in me and in my body and in my being that doesn't fit into the languages that we have currently in the world and so when i wanted to ask you what ha- what have rivers taught you about power and and how does this sort of
1: inquiry in itself embody sensuous knowledge rivers taught me so much about powers and and i will tell you that i have been obsessed with power my whole life like not with having power in the way that we we understand it anyway, Um, but with the question of power, what it is, who has it, why do they have it? Um, And in fact, I I co-authored a children's book with that (laughs) uh, precise title, Power, Who Has It uh, and Why? Um, I, yeah, I even did my dissertation uh, on power and I still had so many questions uh, about it and I, I still do but um after writing about power and sensuous knowledge and uh coining a term exusions um I I have much more clarity about it um, and that clarity and that word exusions came to me from observing rivers um and what was going on uh for my physical body was that i would uh, i was traveling a lot at the time that i was writing the book and and wherever i would travel i would always make sure to go to a river if one existed um and if not then a lake or the sea or you know as as close as i could get to water so i would go to water bodies in many parts, different parts of the world. Um, And and the reason that I was doing that is because I, um, so in Yoruba spirituality, um, there are something called orishas, which are deities. um, And every person has a deity that, whom their spirit, whom their ancestry kind of belongs to, you could say, Um, And my deity is called Yemoja, um, or Yemanya, sometimes in Brazil, she's called Yemaya. Um, And she's Mm -hmm. the goddess of of water bodies, of the sea, of the ocean, of the rivers. Um, And so I have had this relationship with water uh, forever. So wherever I go, I want to go to water. If I'm feeling, if I'm going through something difficult in life, then I seek water. Um, But around this time, as I was doing that, I was also writing my chapter on power. And because I was doing that, I had been researching the the sort of etymology of power. And I'd come across this this, ancient Greek term for power, which was exousia. Um, and then I, I, I was watching rivers and I was also watching YouTube videos of rivers, um, which, which was a wonderful way to spend my time. I would just watch like hours of rivers on YouTube. Um, <laughs> and just, there was a moment where I saw that the way that rivers um, move through through obstacles, through dominance, whether it's man-made wares or uh you know pollution, which of course is also man-made all the many obstacles that we have created for rivers um, was with this kind of force uh, with the, I mean, scientifically it would be gravity, you know, they're moving with gravity, but in this sort of psychosocial, uh, linguistic, cultural space that I work in, uh, it was exusions, it just, the word was just what I was looking for to describe. Um, so, yeah, that's how that's how I came to to kind of redefine power.
0: And it's this branching out that the rivers do that you're pointing to. Right.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting because, uh, as you know, um, there are patterns in everything in, in the universe, including in our bodies and uh, and these Sort of fractal dendritic patterns um, that exist, like in lightning or in in our lungs, our neurons, um, are also, of course, the patterns of a river. If you were to zoom out, um, you know, and you look at how it, a river branches into many tributaries, um, but what is unique with rivers in terms of these fractal patterns? Is that all of these branches um, and tributaries and streams are all kind of ultimately moving the river from its source to the mouth? So there's like a destination. Um, And at some points in a river's journey, it is journeying on its own for a long stretch of time. You know, there are no tributaries seemingly that are feeding into it. and then again, there are periods in its journey where there are you know, millions of small streams and tributaries and lakes all feeding into it so that it can move towards its destination. And that again, really taught me about the power of the collective versus the individual, mm-hmm. um, or I don't even want to use the word versus because it's just, it's just the natural progression um, of, of life, of movements, of, mm-hmm. of time and space. Mm-hmm. I was
0: also reflecting that if you look at a placenta that's exactly what happens the 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 main vein
1: spreads out into this beautiful sort of tree that's inside the placenta It's, it's it can't be completely coincidental can it that we find this pattern no. so much
0: no especially in the initiatory journey from being a non-mother to a mother like nothing has taught me more about the collective than that experience and interesting
1: that the placenta contains that within it yeah, I hadn't thought of that in the placenta. That's that's really really powerful because what I think that that pattern represents, and what what also is about, is basically aliveness. You know, it's the the desire to live, um, and so to have that in the placenta already, you know, it, it's yeah, that's very beautiful. Could you
0: share a couple of words for those of us listening? who really feel what you're saying and want to embody this more in the world? What what can we do? How can we be to connect to this sensuous
1: knowledge? I would say um, be present, cultivate clarity uh, and beauty. You know, in in the book I say uh, do beauty, you know, rather than be beautiful or whatever that may mean. Um, And by do beauty, it's going to be different from individual to individual, but it is about being present. That's one thing that is required. Um, And by being present, I don't mean only from an individualist perspective, but trying to understand whatever it is one is trying to understand from a multi-perspectival view, uh, again, from that sort of kaleidoscopic view. So um, maybe I will leave listeners with uh, what I call the the kaleidoscopic method, um, and it is in contrast to the scientific method. So if you're going through, I mean, even if it's a personal issue, personal decision, Uh, We have been so influenced by your patriarchal knowledge that we try to think of it in this deductive way that if A equals B, then C, but try to think of things with the kaleidoscopic method, look at it from the point of view of a river or a a flower, I don't know, you know, whatever it might be, um, to really bring in that multi-perspectival and simultaneously also critical view, which is inevitable because the moment you start to look at things multi-perspectively, holistically, if you're really doing that, then you will also see that there is a a politic that is embedded in almost everything. Um, And so this cultivation of of doing beauty, but also doing the critical work uh, would be a way of expressing sensuous knowledge and aside from that, um, you know, you can you can join me in my further uh, journeys of exploration, of dissemination, and expression of sensuous knowledge, which I do uh, in interviews like this, in the book, of course. Um, I'm also teaching a course on sensuous knowledge, um, which I am super excited about. Um, and you can join that if you if you hear this um, before the 31st of July, when the course starts, otherwise it will still be available um, afterwards. So, for those listening, then <laughs> you can also probably still go and find find the course um, online. But yeah, those are those are the the examples. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Mina. Thank you for this incredible body of work and body. It is, you know, it connects me to my body. It connects me to the body of the world. And I'm so, so grateful and look forward to connecting more. Thank you so much. Thank you Sophie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Wow. I'm sure you can tell how much I loved that conversation. Um, I'm really looking forward to joining Minna for her course on sensuous knowledge starting at the end of July. And I'll put the link in the show notes at redschool.net forward slash podcast for you if you're interested in reading the book or joining me for the course. And before we go, I just want to remind you again that we have a brand new, exciting, free live online gathering and conversation that we'll be having Um, on Wednesday, the 15th of July, about cyclical creativity and the menstrual cycle as a blueprint for a wildly fulfilling creative life in all aspects. I'm so, so looking forward to this. It's Wednesday, 15th of July at 11 a.m. New York time, 4 p.m. UK time. So for now, it's just to save the date notice and we'll tell you much more about the event soon. Okay, thank you so much for listening today. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. And also, if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that's the best possible way that you can support our work. Excuse me, that was my watch. (laughs) I hope you have a beautiful rest of your morning, day, evening. And I look forward to being with you again next week. And until then keep living life according to your own brilliant rhythm.